Hey everyone, it's Beverly Hallberg. Welcome to a special pop-up episode of She Thinks, your favorite podcast from the Independent Women's Forum where we talk with women and sometimes men about the policy issues that impact you and the people you care about most. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Patrice Anruca. I'm a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum. February is Black History Month, a time when we reflect on the achievements of Blacks in America. Our guest today is Mr. Robert Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center. This organization has helped residents of low-income neighborhoods address the problems of their communities for over 30 years. Mr. Woodson is a former civil rights activist, he has headed the National Urban League Department of Criminal Justice and been a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Foundation for Public Policy Research. Mr. Woodson, it is a pleasure to have you on the She Thinks podcast. I'm pleased to be here. Pleased to be here. <laughs> Terrific. Well, sir, you have quite a background. Please tell us your story and, and why you think it resonates with so many young people. Well, I'm a veteran of the civil rights movement, but I became really disenchanted with the movement and left the movement uh, in the mid-60s following the death of Dr. King when I, uh, and because I differed with the leadership on issues of force busing for integration. I believe that that was a wrong strategy, that the opposite of segregation is not integration, it's, it's desegregation. Because if you conclude that anything is all black is all bad, uh, then that, that's, that's self-defeating. But I also left the movement when I realized that a, a lot of people who suffered and sacrificed didn't benefit from the change. Um, and that I saw there was class, huge class differences that we were using the demographics of low-income blacks to make a case for remedies. And when the remedies arrived, they benefited the well-educated and uh, upper-income Blacks. And so uh, this is a, a, a flaw that I think has uh, adversely affected uh, our ability to fight poverty in America uh, for the last 50 years. Um, and so I left the movement when I realized, as Dr. King said, what good does it do to have the right to eat in a restaurant of your choice or live in a neighborhood of your choosing if you don't have the economic means to exercise that right? So I've since then have worked on behalf of low-income people of all races uh, to help them to develop the capacity to both open the doors of opportunity but also be prepared to walk through uh, those uh, opportunities, and so that's that has defined me for 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 many years. Uh, my course is helping low-income people of all. I don't believe racism is the biggest problem we're facing today. It's uh, elitism is the biggest barrier to the poor getting ahead. Uh, you have hit uh, something that I've observed quite quite often with a lot of the solutions we're seeing. Even for example. Um, student loan forgiveness, uh, which is it's, it's advertised as helping, uh, you know, people with um, with with uh, low income people with college degrees or even college dropouts. But really, it would benefit those uh, who are upper income earners. And, and I think you've hit 
something really interesting, which is the elitism that so many solutions to poverty uh, actually don't really address. I mean, I'm I'm curious. Uh, we saw in 2019 that the poverty rates for minorities um, fell to their lowest recorded levels. And, and for Blacks, that was below 20% for the first time in history. And, you know, I attribute it to a strong jobs market. Um, do you think that it's, uh, what do you attribute the falling uh, of poverty rates to? And, you know, you have those lawmakers who say, well, we actually need more money, more federal money in, in anti-poverty programs. Do you agree with that as well? No, we do not. We don't need more money in anti-poverty programs. When we create a vigorous job market, it is the best anti-poverty fighter in the world is to have a good job market. Tom Sowell documents the fact that the, the biggest drop in poverty occurred between 1940 and 1960. Uh, uh, when we had a, like 82% in 1940 down to 45% in 1950, and then another 18%. And then when the government started its $22 trillion, five-decade-old poverty programs, we, where 70 cents for every dollar that we spent on poverty did not go to the poor. It went to those who serve poor people, and they asked which pro problems are fundable, not which ones are solvable. So we really created a commodity out of poor people. And as a consequence of that, the, uh, the p poverty level has flattened out for almost 50 years until this uh, 2019, because uh, we have created a perverse incentives for people to be independent and self-sufficient. And now all of this emphasis on government, uh, increased government intervention and and so-called institutional racism, it, it, it is, it is a, the worst combination of, of circumstances that I can imagine that, that really threatens the well-being of low, particularly low-income blacks. Well, thank you for jumping right to where we're at today, um, the social justice movement of today. Uh, just overall, do you think that what we're seeing today, the Black Lives Matters movement and, and, and the organization itself, um, does it have any, resemblance, any re resemblance to the civil rights movement that you saw back in the 50s and 60s and that, what you, that you were a part of? It's just the inverse of it. The civil rights movement was fighting for inclusion. It also, we wanted to be judged by the, our character, not the color of our skin. Uh, the Black Lives Matter is just the inverse of that. They want everything to be judged by the color of our skin. They also want government to come in and fix every problem they want. They're also uh, hostile to the very virtues and values that enabled Black Americans to survive slavery and Jim Crow. And that is they are hostile to the nuclear family. They say that it's Eurocentric and therefore racist. They're hostile to Christian faith, which is another uh, 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 value that enabled blacks uh, to survive. The nuclear family and self-determination, all of those are, 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 are antithetical to the civil rights movement. But I think the Black Lives Matter movement has really hijacked the civil rights movement uh, and weaponize race. I don't think they care about the welfare of black people. If they did, they wouldn't be burning down their businesses. And I 100% agree with you. 
I, I, what I found frustrating is hearing when watching the looting and the burning and the rioting, and then hearing from Congress, members of Congress excuse that behavior, particularly the looting, um, excusing it as, uh, well, people need to eat, and that's what they're, they're feeding themselves. Do you buy that argument that poor people uh, turn to looting and rioting because of poverty? That's the poverty up until 1960 has never been linked to aberrant behavior. Otherwise, we would have sharecroppers rioting in, in the 20s and 30s. <laughs> but I can't recall sharecroppers robbing banks or looting stores just because they're poor. That's just a misnomer. Uh, in, in, in fact, part of our, our studies in 1776, we looked at the 1930 to 1940 when racism was enshrined in law uh, and the unemployment rate in the black community was 40%. Elderly people could walk safely in that community without fear of being assaulted by their grandchildren. And we had the highest marriage rate of any group in society. And it was our Christian faith and our commitment to family that shielded us from the horrors of Jim Crow. So how can you conclude if, if, if even during the Depression, we didn't uh, rob and steal and kill each other the way we are today. So how can you make a claim that poverty is, a, is the root cause of some of this behavior we're witnessing? I think you're 100% right. Um, now, you, you brought up 1776. Please talk about that initiative and also the initiative you've, uh, you're launching uh, regarding moms who, who have lost their children to violence and are speaking out. Well, you know, uh, 1776, we are celebrating our first year anniversary on the 18th of February. And that's when a group of, of 23 scholars uh, and, and activists got together and decided we were going to respond to 1619. This was uh, a, a project of the New York Times magazine section. Nicole Hannah-Jones mm -hmm. and other black journalists got together and wrote, uh, wanted to redefine America's birth date as 1619 when the first 20 African slaves arrived on our shore. And they concluded in their essays that America is incurably racist and that capitalism was the outcome of, of, of a slaveocracy. And therefore, America is to be forever condemned and defined by slavery. Um, and therefore, all white people are, are complicit and to be punished, and all black people are victims to be compensated. Um, and, and so we decided that we, we would respond not with a counter-argument, but with a counter-inspirational and aspirational narrative. And so we have essays that refute the fundamental premise of 1619, that slavery and the legacy of slavery is responsible for some of the pathology that we're seeing today. We have evidence that white, when white people were at their worst, blacks were at their best. When we, mm -hmm. In Chicago, for example, in 1929, uh, there were 731 black-owned businesses and $100 million in real estate assets that blacks owned during segregation. And, and this is true all over the country. There were small Wall Streets all over the country. Um, 
When we were denied access to hotels, we built our own. The Wallahaji in Atlanta, the Carver and Calvert Hotels in, Florida, in Miami, the St. Charles in uh, Chicago, the St. Teresa in New York. I could go on and on and on. We built our own medical schools. We even had our own railroad that operated from Baltimore in six, uh, 1868. Uh, we had a, our own railroad when a thousand blacks were fired we uh, received, uh, uh, collected our own capital and financed a railroad that successfully ran from Baltimore to Maine. And so we, we have a rich history of entrepreneurship and resilience that our young people are, it's being, um, it's being kept from our young people. And instead, all of what the radical left is doing is preaching, uh, of victimization and that it's somehow that because of our, our pat, racial past that blacks today exempt from any personal responsibility for their own uplift. That's what we're challenging. Well, I love that. And I love you. You just uh, talked about personal agency and the fact that we as individuals, you know, have choice, have uh, freedom and have the ability to make decisions for ourselves. And it, and it seems like, those values, in addition to family, in addition to community, um, are, are values that you promote through um, the Woodson Center. Uh, but, you know, just returning to one other topic, I've been surprised. I live right outside of D.C. Um, we're seeing carjackings again. Um, haven't seen that since the 80s, I believe. And we're see- across so many cities, we're seeing this resurgence in violent crime um, and, and crime and violence overall. Um, Talk to me. Why do you think we're seeing such a resurgence in violence? Um, and you know, what can we do about it? What What is your organization doing about it? I think I think that the upsurge in violence is directly related to the vilification of the police department. Hmm. I think there's a direct correlation when when the when the radical left uh, has started its assault on the policing and calling for defunding the police. The police, as a consequence, engaged in what I call nullification. They decide if they're going to be accused of racism, they won't patrol those high crime areas as aggressively as they would have. And as a consequence, from Freddie Gray in Baltimore 10 years ago, um, you've seen a decline in aggressive policing in those communities and a rise in murder rates to the point now where recruitment of police officers around the country is down 62%. Many of them are retiring and they're not being replaced. And in some cities, it takes 30 minutes to resp- for the police to respond to a 911 call. But the people who are advocating defund the police don't have to live with the consequence of what they're advocating because it isn't, it, the crime isn't happening where they live. And what we're doing at the Woodson Center, frankly, is we are working with um, a group of black mothers, 2,500 of them who have lost children to violence, and they're coming together, and they want to give voice to say that we are against defunding the police. They're also working with the prosecutors and working with the homicide detectives when a murder occurs by actually serving as a liaison between the police department and the families 
And as a consequence, more trust is built and more cases are being closed. That is an excellent example of community um, engagement with police and helping to restore the trust. I think that you've seen loss between police and communities in part because, as you rightly said, uh, this anti-police rhetoric um, has been devastating. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to um, to wrap up our discussion today just asking, um, as we look forward, uh, you know, what, are, what, is one or, what are one or two policies that you would like to see implemented, whether that's the federal level or for states to consider, that you think will really uplift um, poor communities uh, and help those Americans who are still struggling to, to achieve that economic mobility and that American dream? I'm not so sure it's another policy we need. We just need to look for remedies where the problem is. We need to stop the hustle right now because Black Lives Matter is raising millions of dollars uh, to address systemic racism that's supposed to be the cause of the decline in these cities. Uh, the National Football League pledged $250 million to address, quote, systemic racism. I don't know what that is, but I really think that private uh, uh, corporations should stop allowing themselves to be, uh, to be uh, cheated by Black Lives Matter. We ought to be investing not in esoteric training of middle-class blacks uh, giving race grievance training to guilty white people. Instead, that money should be invested with these mothers and other community-based programs uh, that are, 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 are solving the problem. The leading cause of death of young black men is other young black men. There's nothing that institutional racism can do to stop that. That, that is an internal problem that has to be addressed. The, en the enemy is in the black community, and that's where the solution has to be supported. Sir, you have so well articulated what, um, what I certainly believe. I'm a, a mom of uh, three black young men, black boys, including two babies, and this is what I'm teaching them. I'm teaching them about personal responsibility, about agency, you know, about looking out for their own community. Um, and, and I think that we need more of the types of community-based programs that you are, are working on today. So thank you so, thank you so much for your time, uh, Mr. Woodson, and your thoughts with, uh, for sharing uh, your thoughts with our, our listeners today. And I'm just going to plug, uh, you know, for a fascinating read, I recommend that listeners check out your recent co-authored op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. It's entitled, How the Left Hijacked Civil Rights. So, sir, thank you for joining us. And listeners, we thank you for, for listening in to the She Thinks podcast today. 